take a moment now to, um, to pray together and we'll enter into God's word together. God, thank you for this word. Um, familiar to many of us, this unfamiliar translation, though it is, uh, we look to you as our shepherd this morning. Thank you that you are that. Um, and so we ask your spirit to um, enter in uh, and come around this word as we open it together. Um, be revelation to us personally, our hearts, God, to our community, collectively as we uh, long to be um, shaped as a people filled with grace just as your son Jesus was. And that we might uh, be sent out of this place um, filled with his grace and sharing that with our community and our city and our world. So to that end, God, uh, open your word to us this morning afresh. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so just in case you weren't here last week, we're, we're going, like I said, verse by verse through Psalm 23. Though today we're on Psalm 23, 1b. <laughs> so, and then we'll kind of go through the verses. So it was, last week was the Lord is my shepherd. This week, I don't need a thing. Some of the translations you probably are familiar with is I shall not want. Um, we're going to focus on kind of the positive declarative notion of that, I don't need a thing. And um, to kind of frame that, I, I wanted to ask this morning, who's heard of the scarcity fallacy? Who's heard of this before? A few of you? Um, this was made popular by Bernie Brown a few years ago and, and Daring Greatly, her 2012 kind of New York Times bestseller, where she quoted actually Lynn Twist, who was, she's a, Lynn Twist is a philanthropist, uh, um, uh, activist, global activist, and she kind of, she came up with this idea, the scarcity fallacy, and here's Twist, actually. Brown quotes her in her book, but this is actually Twist speaking. She says uh, that scarcity is the great lie of our day, and, and for me, this is Twist, and for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is this, I didn't get enough sleep. How many of you woke up thinking that this morning? I, th- I saw a few of your eyes. We have good coffee outdoor, out the doors there. Feel free to take an extra cup. The next thought is I don't have enough time. Perhaps that's going to be your thought tomorrow. And whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. We spend most of the hours of our days, of our lives, hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. Before we sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate, already behind, already losing, already lacking. By the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with a litany of lack of the things we didn't get, didn't get done. We go to sleep burdened by those thoughts, wake up with a reverie of lack. This internal condition of scarcity, this mindset of scarcity, lives at the very heart of our jealousies, our greeds, our prejudices, and our arguments with life. And many of us laugh at that because it's kind of funny thinking about like being in bed and like, yeah, I didn't get enough sleep. I don't have enough time. But I think we, we laugh at it also because it's so true, right? Like we understand scarcity because we live it. Every one of us, doesn't matter who you are. Whether that's in our inability to get enough sleep, our lack of time to get things done that we, that we care about, or in our relationships, in our work, at our bank account level. As Brene Brown puts it, she, she puts it this way. It's the problem of never enough. You fill in the blank. Never good enough. Never thin enough. Never successful enough. Never certain enough. This past couple of weeks, never safe enough. Um, so where, in this, where is this true in your life? Where is there never enough for you? Like if you could fill in the blank there. As you look around the room this morning, you know, all these beautiful people, 
and you're worshiping together, this family of faith, and you look around and you say, man, if they only knew that I, we fought in the car on the way here this morning, that my kids don't really respect me, that I struggle with deep self-hatred, that uh, if my thought life, if people knew my thought life, this feeling of deep inadequacy, you know? So where in your life, friends, are you struggling with this concept of never enough scarcity? Now, if I were to ask you to name the opposite of the idea of scarcity, I think a lot of us would say what? Abundance. And to be sure, most of us have been conditioned to think of the opposite of scarcity as abundance. And like, if I can just over, overcome the areas of lack in my life, like fill in the gaps or kind of do a, a find and replace, like a you know, Microsoft Word, find and replace, never enough with more than enough, I'm going to be okay. Like I'm lonely, more than enough social engagements. I'm busy, more than enough time. I'm, I've got a tight budget, more than enough money. I'm insecure, more than enough confidence. I'm filled with doubt, more than enough faith, right? Just come to church more. And here's the deal, though. <laughs> you read Brene Brown, you read Lynn Twist, both of them and other people that write about this stuff argue that that's not the case, that actually abundance and scarcity are just simply two sides of the same coin. That be- at the end of the day, both of those ideas leave you feeling exhausted, inadequate, and unworthy. So, like, abundance is like chasing your own shadow. You're never going to have enough. And so what they argue is that the, the opposite of never enough and scarcity is actually what? Sufficiency. Sufficiency. Isn't that interesting? The opposite of scarcity is actually sufficiency. They both start with S, so it has to be, right? Um, and this is what Twist says about sufficiency. She says, by sufficiency, I'm quoting, I don't mean a quantity of something. That's what abundance is. Sufficiency isn't two steps up from poverty and one step short of abundance. It isn't a measure of barely enough or more than enough. Sufficiency isn't an amount at all. It's an experience. It's a context. It's a declaration. It's knowing. That's all it is, that we're enough. So great, you say, sufficiency. I don't care. I mean, I've been trying this stuff out. I read, I read the book, like whole, wholeheartedness, all that stuff. And yet, I still feel this huge gap in my life. I feel so insecure today, Jack. Whether that's an a insecurity physically or in intimacy in your relationships or your confidence about your future. You know, how do I say, it's okay. Like, I'm enough. It's enough. It's going to be okay. Like, how do I get there? And that's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. Because that's what we're going to focus on this morning. <laughs> Psalm 23, 1b when David says, I don't need a thing, it's a declaration of sufficiency. That's all it is. The Lord is my shepherd. I don't need a thing. It's a statement of David's own sense of sufficiency in the midst of incredible lack. Uh, and thus, we have much to learn from how David developed this, how we might develop it ourselves. And we're going to do that today through kind of two great uh, realities that encompass this little statement, I don't need a thing. We're going to, there's three listed in the bulletin, but we're going to look at just David's great context that surrounds this statement, and then God's great provision, okay? So the context and the provision, all right? So first, the context. And it's kind of, this is a very broad, I'm like, I, I was joking with someone earlier today, like, this first couple of weeks of this series feel like I'm just squeezing water out of a dry sponge because it's just a few words, and how do you preach a sermon on just a few words? And, uh, and so we're going to look at a broad, couple of broad concepts this morning, just to kind of buckle you in. So the context, one of the difficulties, I'll just say, in, in placing these psalms, whether it's Psalm 23 or one of your other favorites, 
in their, in their proper context is that though we have superscriptions, that's like the thing that goes right before the psalm. Like, for example, Psalm 23.0, it says a psalm of David. A lot of psalms have these. Most of them don't come with a date or a reason for writing them. It's like your journals. You know, you wrote your journal, and you go back and you go, oh, I didn't date that. Why was I thinking that? That's weird. And that's kind of what happened here. Uh, I mean, certainly there's some. Psalm 51, for example, begins this way. A psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, right away, we're, that psalm, we're transported into the world of that psalm. We all know this story. He pours out his heart before God. He's been caught. And, and the poignancy of that little verse takes you into not only the story, but it gives the psalm teeth, right? Now you're, you're, he's talking about your sin. But you haven't committed adultery, but you're in, the, you're in the story, right? Unfortunately, with Psalm 23... We have nothing like that. <laughs> it's a Psalm of David. We have no context, no idea when he wrote it, which makes it kind of ahistorical. It's a little bit, like I said, though it's this very evocative Psalm, like I said last week, that we, we read around the time of funerals and it just evokes emotion. It can seem a little overworked and cliche at times. Like, eh, I don't shepherds, sheep. I mean, that's my life. So that said, scholars, if you read scholarship on the Psalms, of the 75 Davidic Psalms, there's 75 of these, most of them, the bulk of them are, are generally linked to two periods in his life. When he was fleeing from Saul, he was being persecuted by Saul. Saul was trying to kill him. And then during his son Absalom's rebellion, Absalom was one of his sons and wanted to take the throne. And they had a very, very tenuous relationship. And what's important to know about these two periods in David's life is this, that he spent them on the run, critically on the run in the wilderness. He spends, and you can read, the, read about this in First and Second Samuel, he's out there in the wild, you know, running from Saul, running from Absalom. And that, uh, that context of the wilderness, in the Psalms of David in general, this psalm in particular is very interesting and important because it's actually one of the most prominent themes in the entire Bible. So it's, in other words, it's not just a place David fled to when he's on the run. It's the context over 300 times in the Bible that appears over and over again for the people of God. In the Old Testament, for example, you guys know this, Wilderness is a place of intense revelation. The plagues happen in the wilderness. Um, divine deliverance, like the parting of the Red Sea, is out in the wilderness. Uh, isolation, Elijah's in a cave in the wilderness when he hears the still, small voice of God. Also, direct encounter, uh, Moses sees God in a burning bush. Where? In the wilderness. You, pa- you fast forward to the New Testament. The very first voice we hear crying out in the New Testament is John the Baptist. And where is he? In the wilderness. And what he's doing is he's calling God's people back into the wilderness. This is this idea of them walking through the wilderness for 40 years, back into the wilderness to meet God in a new way. The first thing that happens with Jesus when he's anointed as the Son of God, what happens? He's baptized in the Jordan, and then what happens? He's sent into the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by the devil. Actually, interestingly, that's the, we're, in, we're in Lent. Those 40 days of fasting, prayer, meditation that are, are really the context for Lent that, that set up Easter, the theological context. Indeed, there's not just a geography of wilderness in the Bible. There's a, there's a, and a topography of it. There's a theology behind the wilderness, a, a profound theology. Now you say, well, great. Why does that matter? I don't care much about theology. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Well, when you think of wilderness, um, what do you think of? Like you think probably of mountains, though you can't see them today. 
national parks, I think of those. Mount Rainier, North Cascades. I think of all the backcountry trips I've taken with Elizabeth the last 15 years. I think of the summits I've climbed. I think of these serene places of solitude, right? Vistas. And in that sense, wilderness can be really deceptive for us as 21st century North Americans from Washington State. Like, it's a tempting metaphor to, like, place ourselves in. Here's what Eugene Peterson says about that. He says, when we're in the wilderness, think of yourselves. We're not in control. We have no assignments. We have no appointments to keep. Stay alert, stay alive. That's it. When we're in the wilderness, we commonly feel our lives simplifying and deepening. Many people, after a few days in the wilderness, sometimes after only a few hours, feel themselves to be more themselves, uncluttered and spontaneous. And very often, he says, even though otherwise unaccustomed to it, they say the name of God. There's something wonderfully attractive about the wilderness. It's very tempting, this metaphor of the wilderness. And yet, here's what Peterson says, when, what we fail to realize, precisely because of that cultural context we live in, is that the wilderness of David's world, his life, is not that wilderness, not our wilderness. So when the Bible uses the term wilderness, well, there is a, a sense of refuge and provision there. So he makes me lie down in green pastures. We'll go to that next week. There's also a profound sense of desolation. There's this book I picked up a, a year or so ago called While Shepherds Watch Their Flocks. And um, it's actually, it's a devotion for Lent. So 40 Days of Reflections on Biblical Leadership. This guy, Timothy Lanick, I think he did it for his doctor and ministry project. But he is studying this idea of the good shepherd and shepherds in Psalm 23 and all that. And in the first chapter, he goes out into this place where the Good Samaritan parable happens. It's called, um, oh, this, the Kidron Valley. Who's been to the Kidron Valley before? I've never even been to the Middle East. I probably, a pastor, I probably should go, right? Okay, anyway, so he talks about this. And here, I'll just read a little quote. He says, arriving in the Kidron Valley, in the suffocating heat, I had a full, full-blown migraine. So I, I collapsed in the monastery's shade. This, they were visiting this monastery there. My only hope to get out... Uh, to get out was a taxi, which pulled up at noon. Packed with French tourists with a round trip fare, there was no room for a, a sick hiker like me. I pleaded for space, even in the trunk. And so one hour later, we rode out. I was slung over their bags, holding the trunk open, gasping for air. The temperature was a piping 125 degrees Fahrenheit. Unbelievably, he says, desert temperatures may drop over 80 degrees in the dead of winter. The furnace becomes a freezer. So restless and shivering, tent dwellers stoke their fires through sleepless nights. At dawn, shepherds wonder what they've surrendered to the icy darkness. So in the severe winter of 1945 and 46, nomads in Algeria lost half of their herds to freezing. A sober bystander recalls a similar tragedy in Palestine, saying this, quote, I still remember how those poor sheep died in dozens while their owners stood looking at them, unable to do anything for them, The desert, he says, is a place of death. The Lord is my shepherd. (laughs) I don't need a thing. The desert's a place of death. And that's key. That's so key for us. Like the salient characteristic of this wilderness place where David is speaking the psalm into our lives is that it cannot support human life. It's not designed to do it. You can't grow enough food to live there. You can't catch food to live there. There's no water to sustain life. There's no shelter. It's hot. It's cold. The desert, the wilderness, is a place of death. And thus what the Bible's saying is is by both framing this narrative in the wilderness, this story of 
that David writes, this poem, as well as going so far as to say if you go to the book of Hebrews, for example, much later in the Bible, that we are all still in the wilderness. Don't forget, it says, your forefathers who wandered through the wilderness. That's you. The Bible's calling us to use that paradigm in order to understand our lives, as well as the things that happen in our world. In other words, the Bible says right now, life in this world, your life is a life of deep wilderness. And you might be asking, well, why does the Bible say that? That's not very encouraging. <laughs> like, and, and my answer to you is that you have to understand um, something deeper than just the good news of grace to understand what the Bible is telling you. You have to understand right now that you're in the wilderness. Your life is wilderness. So let me give you an illustration of what this means. Who's heard of the second law of thermodynamics? A few scientists here. I'm gonna, I don't want to read the whole thing. I, it's a long thing, but I, there's that book, uh, Things Fall Apart. That's the second law of thermodynamics. Everything falls apart. And what this means, let me just give you a vivid illustration of this. Um, how many of you like to get those, those pre-made chickens at like Whole Foods and QFC? We get those occasionally because, yeah, we buy those and then you have it on the f- table. So imagine the chicken you have in that plastic black thing. You take the cover off. It's kind of sweating. It's nice and warm. And put it on your table. It's, and think of your house. How's it smell, right? Second law of thermodynamics. Leave it there for a few hours. What's going to happen to it? It's going to be cold chicken, but you can still eat it. You probably won't die. Let's go, this is like supersize me, that movie. Leave it there for about three days. What's going to happen to that chicken? Eh, start smelling a little bit. Now about three weeks, what's going to happen? Even the QFC version, right? I mean, Whole Foods for sure. It's going to become an absolute biohazard. Like, you're going to have to be quarantined. Your house is going to have to be just fumigated. And you're, you're saying, of course that's what happens. It's a chicken. Like, I mean, that happens to chicken. According to Sonny Carnot, the French scientist who came up with the, the theory, everything's falling apart. Not just chicken from QFC. Uh, everything's losing energy. It's getting cold and then getting smelly and then rancid and then diseased. Everything, everything is falling apart. So in other words, that chicken and the wilderness are just pictures of your future. Happy Sunday. I mean... The Bible's saying this about our lives. Your life is a life in the wilderness. about the world. The world is a world in the wilderness. It's just saying that physical deserts cannot support human life, not in and of themselves. So the world in the condition we see it today, it was never designed to do this. It was never designed. We can engineer it to do that. We can try to do that. But it is not designed to support the deepest desires of our hearts as much as we try. It'll never satisfy us. And see, most people react to this because they see, they see when, most thing, when things go wrong, you know, when you have a wilderness experience, like the water you're drinking from dries out, the food you're eating is no longer there, dries up, your health goes, you know, a relationship goes sideways, your career goes through a valley, the money's gone, wilderness, something important in your life that was there is now gone. Mo- almost immediately, most of us, I've done this before, is why did God let that happen. Like, why, God? I thought you were good. And there's nothing wrong with that question per se. The psalmist, actually going back to the psalm, do that all the time. It's called lament. A third of the psalms are psalms of lament. Like, why, God? And that's a good question to be asking, a good declaration to say to God. But underneath the question, most modern people, most of us, run with this assumption. If my career hadn't gone south, if that relationship hadn't broken up, 
if, if I'd only gotten married by now, or maybe I hadn't married the person I did marry, uh, I'd be happy, right? And the reason we get, in other words, the reason we get mad at God is that we think it's God's job to arrange the circumstances of our world to fit our lives. Like my health, my career, my relationships, my job. And if those things work out, my God, I'm happy, right? And the Bible says, <laughs> get real. Like that's second law of thermodynamics. You don't understand the world you're living in. Like the world's not designed, your job's not designed, your relationships aren't designed, your marriage isn't designed, your body's not designed to, to fulfill the deepest longings of your heart. Yeah, they're good longings. But you're not, the world's not designed for that. In other words, the people of Israel, as they're wandering through the desert, David, as he's doing the same, would have died except for God's miraculous intervention in their lives. You'll never, ever get the deepest needs of your heart satisfied by anything in the world unless you first go to God. The world can't do it. That's what this is about, okay? The Lord's my shepherd. I don't need a thing. This is said in the context of wilderness. So let me just give you a couple applications before jumping to this next thing. The first one comes from actually Richard, who's our senior pastor. He wrote a book. I don't know if you've read the book. It's uh, a new book called Wild Faith. He wrote it about a year or so ago. And it's Reflections on Wilderness. He went on a sabbatical for about a few months. I don't remember anymore. But he walked through the Alps um, for 40 days, and then he wrote this kind of book. And here's what he says. Literal wild places aren't needed to appreciate what God's doing in the wild places of your life. Because anywhere you've never been, listen to this, anywhere you've never been is a wild place. So that makes the first day of university a wild place. A new job, a wild place. And remember what I said about wilderness? Places of death. <laughs> the unemployment line, a wild place. That baby that was just born, a wild place. The oncology ward, the divorce court. Makes all of those equally wild as Sinai, in many ways more so. In other words, there are literal wild places in the world, and yet there are also metaphorical ones. And we're equipped for each one by experiencing the other. And so here's the, here's the question. It's not, are you in a wilderness today? It's this, what's your wilderness? Every one of us is subject to the second law of thermodynamics, decay, brokenness, disappointment. So what's your wilderness? Pick it. Pick one. <laughs> Everybody is facing something. What's your wilderness? Which leads to the second application I want to offer you today. David lived this life of unforeseen wild places, unforeseen wilderness experiences. His brothers were jealous of him. He's the youngest. He's now king. He is facing a, a multiple assassination attempts all the time. He faced the reality at his low point that he'd become an adulterer, murderer, and liar. He broke three of the Ten Commandments right there. <laughs> he faced his own son stealing the throne from him, running him out of town. I mean, think of your son doing that to you. So David's life is filled with wilderness. And yet the reason we keep reading his story and loving his Psalms is this. He was able to learn from those. He learned from the wilderness. He learned, was shaped, and was transformed by the wilderness. So here's the other question. Will we? Will you allow yourself to learn from the wilderness you're in? What's your wilderness that you're in? Will you allow it to shape you? Uh, we need to learn from our own wildernesses. Who's, who's heard of Wim Hof? A couple of you have heard of Wim Hof. This is this crazy Dutch guy. He's called the Iceman. I thought he was Norwegian, but he's Dutch, but it's basically the same. So, 
Uh, my, well, no, my mother-in-law's here. She's from Norway, so she knows I always jab at her. But, um, so he's this extreme athlete called the Iceman because of his, his ability to withstand extreme cold, which he attributes to the Wim Hof breathing method. So what they do is they, it's not quite the, the ice bucket challenge, but nearly. They submerge him in these ice baths, these, like bucket, these uh, baths of ice, and then they have this breathing method, short, powerful, inhale, exhale, and he claims, and there's research around this, that they're able to alleviate symptoms of MS, arthritis, diabetes, depression, anxiety, PTSD, bipolar, cancer, using this method. It's fascinating, and it's very controversial. But one of the features of the... <laughs> so don't go home and sit in ice to full of ice, okay? Uh, but one of the features of this method is this. They have this mantra. It's kind of new agey, so I'm not, like, recommending it. But this mantra, you're in this ice bath, and you say, Welcome cold. Welcome, because it's cold. Welcome cold. You have to kind of calm your body down, and you're doing this breathing. So here's my question. What's your cold? What's your wilderness? And could you learn to say, welcome cold? Like, I think we need to think about this. Is it cancer? It sounds crazy. Welcome. Is it a marriage that's imploding? Is it dead? Is it deep discouragement in your career? Is it anxiety and depression? Welcome. And Which is, by the way, not passivity, it's not giving in to that. It's not, that's fatalism. That's not faith. It's saying, God, welcome, open-handed to all of life. I'm willing to acknowledge that much of the context of my life is wilderness, and I'm opening, my, I'm opening myself to learning from that, learning in it, and then allowing you to grow me because of it. Welcome. What's the wilderness for you, and how might you begin to welcome it as a context in which you're being invited to, to grow in new ways, okay? So that's that's the context, the great context. David says this statement in, the Lord's my shepherd, I don't need a thing. And that brings us to the second thing here, the great provision. So in the midst of that hunger, cold, fear, fatigue, David says, I don't need anything. I lack nothing. And, you know, first blush, David's either hopelessly naive or just like he's like this classic guy. He's between a rock and a hard place, and he's not able to admit he needs help. Like he's like a guy in the wilderness who doesn't ask for directions, I know there's guys that do this, but, you know, I'm okay. I don't need anybody's help. I don't need a thing, right? I know not just guys do that. Everybody does that. Is David sort of expressing this, like this sort of self-importance, this rugged Western individualism? And the answer is I don't think so. He's not a Western individualist, number one. But also, look at David's life. He knew cold, like welcome cold, which means he lacked warmth. He didn't have a blanket. He knew hunger, so he lacked food. He knew assassination attempts. He lacked security. He knew rejection, so he lacked intimacy with his son. He knew darkness. He's filled with lack, and yet he's declaring in the midst of that, (laughs) I don't need anything. In other words, he's saying, I'm wide awake. I'm very aware that I could die out here. I'm being hunted. The temperatures are fluctuating. There's no shelter. My life's in jeopardy, and yet I'm okay. (laughs) <laughs> like, who does that, right? And thus, I think we just need to take a deeper look at what David means by this. There's something deeper happening in this statement, I don't need a thing. Now, I thought of <clears throat> what that deeper thing would be all week, all week, all week, and finally came to me yesterday. It's just now coming to me. But <laughs> and, and it really it came out of this situation in Jesus' life. Um, I was thinking about this a lot all week, and it's in John chapter 6, and you'll know the story. 
It's this place where Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. You know the story? A lot of us do. It appears in all the Gospels. <clears throat> so it's one of those stories. And most of us know it quite well. You know, it's a story where Jesus goes up on this mountainside. By the way, that's a wilderness. <laughs> and his disciples and this large crowd who'd witnessed him healing people, confronting the religious authorities with all this grace and truth, they follow him out there. They, wanna, they basically, they're curious. They want to know more. They want to know, hey, Jesus, where do you get that power? We want some of that, you know? So they start following him. And uh, it's interesting. They get out there, and Jesus sees this crowd coming toward him. And the first thing he says, he doesn't start teaching, at least in John's gospel. He says to his disciples, we must feed them. And by the way, I don't think he's talking about physical hunger. Okay, they're in the wilderness. Remember the context. So one of his disciples, who's Peter's brother, Andrew, He's a pragmatist, and he says, we don't have enough money, Jesus. Like, didn't bring my wallet. There's no grocery store. <laughs> like, we don't have food. I've got no power bars here. And uh, interestingly, Andrew says to, to Jesus, he points out this boy. Well, but there's this one kid. He's got five loaves, two fish. Pause. I thought about that in the context. I think, personally, Andrew's just being sarcastic. Like, he's like, seriously, Jesus? <laughs> yeah, try that one out. Let's just see if you can do something with five loaves and two fish. And Jesus, in John 6.10, he's not perturbed by that at all. He just says to the crowd, please be seated. And, and by the way, there's a little detail in John. I just love this. There's plenty of grass in that place for them to sit on. Interesting detail, huh? The Lord's my shepherd. I don't need a thing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? And so Jesus performs this stunning miracle. It's probably his most Stunning miracle next to Lazarus being raised from the dead. John says, 11, he feeds them as much as they wanted, and there was a lot left over. <laughs> now, the reason I tell you this story, and in the context of this statement David makes, is right after the miracle, Jesus retreats. Pulls away. He's probably tired, ready for the next thing. They're exhausting him. And we're told the crowd, once they discovered Jesus left, they followed him out. They kept looking for him. Like, where'd you go, Jesus? Like, why'd you leave? You know, we just got, we just eat. You know, let's have, let's do more. And this is my paraphrase. Jesus says, really? <laughs> like, are you that stuck? Like, are you that dense? You're not interested in me. Like, it's morning now. They're grump, they're hungry, you know. They haven't eaten. And so they find Jesus and they're like, hey, Jesus, got another loaf, another fish. Let's do it again. And, and Jesus says, you know, no, you're not after me. You're after another miracle, like the one in the desert. And he, he refers back to Moses and the manna. He says, I'm not. I'm not just another Moses. I'm not just another source of manna. Miracles aren't why I'm here. Though I work miracles, I'm more than that. I'm something more than that. So they say, well, then, well, then who are you? What do we need to do? It's interesting. They're always talking about what they need to do and don't do to get God's love, you know, and Jesus responds in this classic way. Here's where I want to end it. Nothing. You don't need to do anything. <laughs> Just believe. Just believe in the one whom God has sent. That's it. You want to know the secret of life, friends? Just believe. Just believe. You see what Jesus is doing in this scene with this crowd? He's saying, God's not just a provider. He's not like a vending machine you go into and get your power bar from. Uh, 
though God provides, he doesn't provide according to our felt needs, our hungers, our appetites. God, what God does is rooted in God's character, and God's character is first and foremost to be present in our lives. Believe in the one who God sent, not what God can give us or do for us. Does this make sense? So God's not a miracle God, though he does miracles. God's a God of presence. So God didn't give David an electric blanket in the desert, though he was cold. Uh, He didn't make food appear, though he was hungry. He didn't reconcile this relationship with Absalom. By the way, Absalom is killed. That relationship is never reconciled. And yet David says, I don't need a thing. I can't believe David died without wanting reconciliation with his own son. And yet he says, I don't need a thing. I'm provided for. God's enough. See, an accurate view of God means this, that we begin to see that God doesn't provide according to our felt needs, our so-called desires, our appetites. God provides according to God's character, and that character is first and foremost a character of presence in our lives. The Word became flesh and blood and dwelt among us. That's it. No matter the circumstance, no matter the situation. So let me give you a couple applications to take home for this one, and then we'll close. The first one is this. Uh, You and I have hunger in us, all of us, that's deeper than physical hunger. So I wake up every day, it's bacon and coffee, every day. Two slices of bacon, a little pot of coffee, boom, I'm not hungry, okay? But I also have hunger hunger for intimacy with Elizabeth and my kids. I also have hunger for meaning in my work. I mean, some of you go, really? You work in the church, but yes, I have hunger for meaning. Value in my friend group, wholeness in my body, I have hunger, I'm hungry all the time. And what Jesus is saying is that that hunger won't be filled by bread alone, Jack. Um, Bread can't fill you. Work will never fill your hunger, Jack. Sex won't fulfill your hunger for intimacy. Exercise and diets, great doctors won't fulfill your hunger for wholeness. Social media, all the likes, follows, tweets, retweets in the world won't fulfill your hunger for connection. What Jesus is saying, if I could say it this way, is if you don't get your emptiness, your hunger filled by Jesus... Whatever that emptiness is, you'll starve. You will starve. You're going to starve forever. All the work is going to wear you down. All the striving is going to burn you out. All the grasping is going to leave you empty-handed unless you first have the kind of bread, the bread of life that Jesus talks about, the bread of God's presence in your life. You're just going to end up hungry, which leads to the second application. Unless I'm really in love with God, like unless you are really in love with this God who is just present in your life, this is going to be really hollow. Not really good news. Like, this is not, think of David again, this is not a guarantee against suffering, temptation, and failure, nor is it a guarantee of physical security, happiness, and satisfaction. That's not Christianity. If you're following that Jesus, you're with the Jesus who just fed the 5,000. You're not with the Jesus after that. As I said, David experienced all those things for generations that people of God have, Wilderness is a constant experience for us that live in a fallen world. And thus, all God is offering, (laughs) good news and bad news, friends, all God is offering to us is his presence in our lives. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. That's it. And that's all David is declaring in Psalm 23, 1b. The Lord's my shepherd. I don't need a thing. God's presence is enough. It's a bold recognition of that. And so God says, are you thirsty, friends? Like, is your soul just dry right now? I'm living water. Are you hungry? Is there a feeling of absence and loneliness in your life? Relationships aren't where you want them to be. 
I'm the bread of life. Are you walking in the dark? You feel with doubt and fear and lack of hope. I'm the light of the world. This is Jesus. He's truth when you need to hear it. He's encouragement, restoration when you're at the bottom of your barrel. He's guidance when you're at this crossroads in a career or in life. He's the reconciler when there seems like there's no way forward in relationship. This is Jesus, the God of presence. And that's his, his intent is to always provide us with his presence in our lives, always. And so the key is we need to learn within our points of need how to discern God's presence. For example, my knowledge of God's faithful presence in my life emerged in the season of addiction and darkness and absolute unbearable loneliness. I talked about that last week. Another's is going to need to emerge when they're in a season of unemployment, right? Another's going to emerge during a season of addiction or shame when, when people know that about you. That's when you're going to discern God's presence in your life. All these things which we avoid like the plague <laughs> are the context in which God expresses himself in us and through us and where we get to grow most deeply. So here's my question for you, and I'll invite John and Addie back up now. I want to just meditate on this with you together. Though David says, the Lord's my shepherd, I don't need a thing, he had needs, right? So let me ask you this. Where's your need? Where's your deepest need right now? Where's your hunger? I put it that way. Where's your wilderness? Are you able to say, God, no matter what, no matter the outcome, no matter how long this season lasts, you're enough. You're enough. There's nowhere else I can go. There's nowhere else I desire to go. I want to invite us into that, friends. Like Psalm 23, 1b is just this opportunity for us to meditate for a moment, if it's just a moment, to pray like, God, you're my shepherd. I know you want to express your character in my life. I have deep needs. Let's meet in that context. Okay. So that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to just uh, invite Addie to start playing for us, and then um, rather than reread the psalm again, we're going to just meditate on this first line together. So I invite you to kind of close your eyes and bow your heads. I'm not going to have you, have you raise your hands or anything like that. Don't worry for visitors. But just literally allow God's presence to, to, to meet us. God, you are our shepherd. We declare that this morning, that that's your character. And we can put that in a lot of different ways. You're our friend. You're our help. You're our comfort. You're light in our darkness. And yet, God, even though David said he didn't need a thing, we know that he had needs. And so, God, we come like him to you. Come in your presence, God. And as individuals in community this morning, we express to you our needs. God, we have needs we want to give to you. Profound needs. Needs for healing. Needs for confidence. Needs for reconciliation and restoration. God, would you meet us with your character in the midst of our need? Friends, I just want to invite you in these moments we have. Uh, we're going to sing this song, I Surrender. 
to just literally hands up if that's comfortable for you and just say, God, here are my needs. I have a need. And don't, don't try and get an answer from God. Allow God to meet you at your point of need with his presence. That's it. His presence, his character, who he is. That's what matters this morning. Let's do that together. Let's worship God.